0: Hi, this is Michael Artie from Great White, and you're rocking with my friend John Kaddick on Iron City Rock. And welcome to episode 421 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 421, we are going to get you ready for the Gnarly 80s Arena Rock Festival in Mountain Pleasant, Pennsylvania. It's coming up on October 5th. It features uh, some local bands, including, but not limited to, Twisted Fate sour mass Shiva skydiver phonic 13 stories uh, there's also going to be uh, some vendors crafts uh, artisan type things food trucks uh, and hand lighting the event uh, one of the best from the, ba- the uh, 80s we've got great white uh, great white it's uh, been in the news in the last year or so after replacing Terry their uh, vocalist. With uh, veteran musician and uh, solo artist Mitch Malloy, uh, so we had a chance to sit down with Mark Kendall recently, talk all about how that transpired, how the how and why uh, they opted to make a change with the vocalist position. So, to give you an idea what Mitch sounds like with the band, here's a little bit of a great white classic with Mitch Malloy on vocals. This is House of Broken Love, and then we'll get into that in an interview with Mark Kendall.
1: Don't you wake me I'll be dreaming That I'm free On the daybreak Don't you shake me Send me back to Misery Because I'm dealing with the devil No help from above Stealing love taking chances with you baby I saw something in your eyes And though no one else could blame me There were signs I should have recognized Now I'm dealing with the devil With no help from above I'm sleeping with the devil in this house
0: Iron City Rocks we have on the line from Great White we have guitarist Mark Kendall how you doing man? I'm
2: doing good John thank you
0: great you're going to be rolling into uh, western Pennsylvania on the 5th of October to do a show at Hot Shots uh, arena kind of a ice arena here in Mount Pleasant Pennsylvania and uh, you guys have always been great about touring in this area uh, but you're rolling in with a new singer uh, Mitch do you want to talk a little bit about how Mitch kind of came on the radar um, you know what kind of you know your experience with him and
2: you know they ended up bringing him into the band sure um yeah first of all uh, we're real excited about this gig uh we we did a whole tour with alice cooper uh in canada or partly in canada and it was all ice hockey arenas <laughs> so i got some pretty good memories about that Excellent. um yeah, uh, as far as Mitch goes, he's been in the band a little more than a year. It, it didn't happen by design. It was, uh, just a case where he, he, uh, came into the studio when we did our album with producer Michael Wagner in, in Nashville mm-hmm. to do this to do a gang shout with like 20 bands. We got, uh, Michael Wagner, he knows a lot of people because he's kind of an icon, worked with everybody. So just about every band that had members in Nashville, he got down to the studio to do this gang shout. Um, Hailstorm, Pat Travers, I mean, you know, uh, Winger, I believe, and just a ton of bands. And Mitch was in that group, and I believe, I might have said hi to him at the most at that point, and then um, on the Monsters of Rock Cruise, he came on stage with us uh, just to do this my, my, my thing uh, in Once Bit and Twice Shy. A lot of times we have a lot of bands come on stage just for, you know, for fun. Right. And saw him there. And then one morning I was just on my phone and happened to see this Van Halen story. I guess he had a short stint with Van Halen that I've never heard anything about, so I was real interested because they grew up with Van Halen as a young teenager, and you know they were a local band. I've seen them; my first time I saw them was in a junkyard, like three blocks from my house, for a dollar. Oh, so I, I know their history very well, and I'm very good friends with Michael Anthony. I've been to video shoots of theirs. I'm just you know kind of close to him and kind of always looked up to him. And but never heard of the Malloy story like I heard so like I said um, so I watched this little documentary it's about 15 minutes or so about how I guess after Sammy left Sammy Hagar left he uh, he was uh, recommended by some manager that had something to do with Van Halen said he'd be perfect Eddie loved him said he was the best singer ever and so he's in the band, and then when he went home, I guess they were on MTV, and three of them walked out, and then all of a sudden, David Lee Roth walked out, and Mitch just got really just, you know, disenchanted with that moment, didn't think it was going to work, so, you know, he it was tough enough to try to fill anybody's shoes that have sang in that band, but... Much less, you know, the David Lee Roth career and, you know, and even Sammy would be very tough. So he just didn't like it that all of a sudden, you know, insinuating that Dave was back and everything after he'd been in the band two months. So anyways, but besides all that, I, I had heard him sing Panama. I'd never heard of this guy. You got to understand. And I thought he sounded real good on it. And then it made me look into his career a little bit, and i come to find out he has like 10 solo albums. So that kind of took me back, and I listened to a few of those. Got real excited about his voice. I'm wondering what he's doing now and stuff, and uh, got a hold of my keyboard player. Anyways, uh, long story short, he was interested, he's a producer engineer so he had no problem overdubbing vocals on our music some of our old songs new songs sent it back and it was just glued to the music perfect so we asked if he would come out and jam with us he jammed with us for three days and we've been he's been in the band ever since so obviously you well, know, it wasn't like we put at we didn't put ads out for singers or anything it just we we're kind of growing apart from our singer that was in the band, carry and uh, n- nothing real drastic, like no big fights or anything. We just, we just, he was doing a lot of other projects and had, was going in a lot of different directions, and uh, you know, and then this Mitch just kind of, all of a sudden, we're seeing him all over the place and uh, kind of close to us. So, so that's how that's how he got in.
0: Mark, when you're looking at, at a vocalist, uh, you know, obviously.
2: You know, if he's
0: good enough to sing with Eddie, I think a lot of us can, you know, make that leap. That he's probably good enough to sing with anybody. But when when you're looking at, you know, you kind of you and and, and Michael and, and the guys are kind of the the holders of the brand of Great White, you know, for lack of a better term. And, and you yeah. guys have had a, certainly a a certain sound over the years. When you're looking at a vocalist, do you have to kind of take that into consideration of? you know obviously you have a catalog of material and you you maybe approach it different than when you were you know 19 looking for buddies to jam with and maybe start a band with you can go and just find a guy who's got a good voice that you gel with and you have good chemistry but now you've got to look at okay how does this singer represent our catalog is that going into right. it
2: yeah that that goes into it a little bit um we wanted, we wanted him to represent the songs well. That's why we gave him older music like Rock Me and stuff like that. Wanted to hear what he'd sound like and if he could, you know, pull that off, um, and make it sound like the songs and, and represent him well. He right. did that. So immediately we're thinking future, you know, yeah. um, God, we're looking forward to what he sounds like with our new music. Yeah. And I've already sent him a song. We're kind of in the, songwriting process right now, I sent him just music only, didn't give him any melody lines whatsoever, just, I I felt like the song was arranged well, Mm -hmm. that if if he has any kind of skills, he should be able to pull something off in this song, and he came back with a full song, lyrics, hook, you know, beautiful chorus, and everything, so that... That kind of uh, relieved me and got me even more excited that this guy has so much song sense from his, you know, solo career because he's been writing songs for 10 albums. So uh, obviously, he kind of knows what he's doing. And I I was thrilled when he, when he could come with the song lyrics and everything just from a musical idea.
0: Yeah, no. In your your writing experience with with previous singers, were you involved with you know the vocal melodies, or is that something you typically would turn over to Terry or in, you know in the past Jack?
2: I I've always showed him the melodies. Okay. I, uh, that's the way that worked best in Great White with Jack, and then he would like put his own twist on it, mm-hmm. you know, and deliver it with that beautiful voice and that's just the way we worked as a band we knew each other's strengths and weaknesses sure with terry i did i did it the same way but terry would come back with something completely different that i loved way better (laughs) you know what i mean so uh, that was really kind of cool too because um you know i just always felt it's the way i always did it you know so For me to just send somebody music, I was really curious to how it would work doing it that way. And I was really, like I said, kind of relieved that now I can... It takes a little workload off me, but when I write a song, I I don't just throw chords together and, like, you know, pray it works, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually have a lot of melody ideas. I got ideas for you know, pre choruses, choruses, have you know so I wanna make sure there's a lot available for a singer. I don't you know I know guitar players that just throw cards throw chords together and just kinda, of, you know, yeah. They get lucky every once in a while. And then I know of uh, my heroes who really have a great song sense, you know, um, they're just great songwriters. So there, there's a lot of different schools of a lot of bands do it different ways, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. The, yeah, The best
2: way for us is, when, is to jam together. That A lot of songs stem from us playing together just random jamming, kind of like the Stones. They'll just jam for like nine hours straight and pick little riffs here and there to work on, you know, make songs out of stuff. <laughs> I kind of like that, that way too, as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you've certainly been you've been doing this long enough that, um, you know, you were doing this long before the technology was, you know, such that you could just kind of cut and paste riff ideas and loop things, you know, so you're coming from that, a much more organic yeah. background.
2: I got a lot to say about that, too, because when you're, um, you know, because you see a computer, you see where every bass note lands, and you can see that it's not landing perfectly on the kick every time. So the the thing a lot of people do is make sure all those bass notes line right up with the kick drum. And what they're actually doing is turning it into a machine. Their yeah. their, their guide is a machine. So to me, they're sucking the human element out of it. I like the old school way. If it sounds good to us, it's good. I when I hear a singer and nothing's poking out at me, even though autocorrect might say something different, if it's going by and I'm digging it, it we don't touch it.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, that's gotta be, we all
2: feel the same way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean you can hear somebody who may, you know, intentionally hit a or even accidentally hit a note that's not quote perfect, but it sounds cool. You know, I mean that's since the dawn of music, there's been things that have broken the rules, and you're right. It's so easy yeah. to look at a you know a graphical representation of sound and look at spikes and say, okay, well the kick drums here, the bass notes here, the vocals start here, and cut, drag, drop, you know, move it into a you know at that point you're just using a drum machine,
2: you know. And it's, yeah, uh, exactly. You know, and that's not human. Uh, uh, you know, some some of the great performances ever. Are, are just, they're not accurate to a computer. Mm -hmm. If you listen to 30 Days in a Hole by Humble Pie, it's all over the place as far as, as far as the, the beat is concerned. As far as like, if you put, you know, if you, if you put a drum machine next to it, it would be laughable. But it's the more it's the best. You know they're so engulfed in the soul and uh they just capture the moment and they feel each other when they're playing together so you don't really notice that you know it's just like if you want to drag it back a little bit and it feels right it's right you know yeah I, i i 30 days in the hole is one of the greatest songs ever written and the tempo is out of control and it's still beautiful so and you know they didn't have a computer screen to look at to fix this and that, and it's the greatest. Yeah. So maybe, I like that human conne- human connection to music is sure. is what it's all about. And most of my heroes feel the same way. I've heard Joe Walsh say that. I've heard tons of people. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you look know, at, you machines mean, isn't something about the the new world that I, I really rely on. Um, so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it certainly has its upsides for <laughs> you know, communicating with your fans and getting your music in the ears of fans, but it from a production yeah. standpoint, it's it's a, it's got its pluses. I guess the affordability of recording is certainly much better than it used to be. I mean, I'm sure you remember budgets that, you know, required oh. you to tour for years to pay back um, you know, on albums that you can make oh, much God. cheaper now, but
2: so you got that right. I mean, it no longer takes two weeks to get the kick drums down. Right. It you know it's like Michael Wagner had twenty six mics on the drums, and it took maybe four hours to set all that up. You know that would have normally taken so long, and, and uh, you know yeah. So the the technology helps with the speed of the recordings and and stuff like that. I'm just saying. I am not a fan of auto-correction,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and all all this auto-tune stuff and correcting, you know, things, bass notes, or... Right. You know, I, 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 I like to just play it again if it's not a good performance, you know. It's not a big deal to play it again. Okay. I know when I didn't play my best, you know.
0: I think you just said something that's probably a foreign concept. to A lot of musicians play it again. You know that's that might be the the whole underlying theme of this is some musicians just don't play it again. You know, I mean, yeah. they just try to punch in it, it best, punch in a slightly fixed version <laughs> in spots. But
2: yeah, here's the funny thing about Michael Wagner, he doesn't go in for, but he always makes you feel good and confident when you record with him. But he doesn't go in for the euphemisms. You know what I mean? He doesn't like if you sing and it's not a good performance, he, he'll say something like, don't sing flat, <laughs> you know? And I love that because it, it, it's just like, do it again. It's just another way of saying that, you know, like you can do better than that. And, but he doesn't beat around the bush, He goes, you know, he'll just say, yeah, I, just do it over, <laughs> you know, and you will know too, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to get away with anything.
0: Mark, one thing I've sure. always wondered yeah. with, with you guys um, was, and maybe it was just me as a fan, you know, because I, I, I remember listening to Shot in the Dark um, and the self-titled album, and, and then Once Bidden came out. And, and I don't want to say it was necessarily a style change, but there was a lot more blues, I think, in in Once Bidden. Um, was that something that you guys kind of consciously thought about when you were putting those songs together or just what you were into listening to that may have seeped into you know the influence of that album
2: well I, i've told the story before but um you know and kind of let the cat out of the bag on the very first album we were forcing ourselves to try to be like judas priest or something mm-hmm. you know but it, it really had nothing to do with my personal influences. I was into Carlos Santana, you know, Johnny Winter, Album Lee, you know, players like that, Billy Gibbons, you know, uh, all these soulful uh, guitar players. So we kind of forced that first album and it turned out pretty good. I thought we did okay on it. Sure. Um, didn't, nothing real big and commercial or whatever. So, when on the second album, we were kind of trying to find ourselves a little bit, and what ended up happening was just during rehearsals, uh, during the recordings of any given song, I when I wasn't playing on the on the tape, in between stuff, I'd be I'd be playing things like "I'm Going Home" by Elton Lee, mm. and. That did not go unnoticed by Alan Niven. So, what he did was kind of extract our influences and let us let that be okay. And so, by the time we got to Once Bitten, we'd written it, uh, quite a few songs at that point, and he just let me play what I felt like playing. M-B-U. And that's the reason Once Bitten had more blues overtone, because when you listen to our music. You hear the blues in there. Absolutely. But you also hear keyboards and real heavy backbeats. And then you had a singer that kind of had that Zeppelin-esque tone to his voice. Mm-hmm. You know? So when we all played together, it was like you you heard the different influences. Michael, Michael Lardy is fully captivated by Billy Joel and Elton John. You know? And then our drummer's like Mr. Death Metal, you know? And I swear, and, and so when we play together, it just is what it is, you know? But that's that's because we became true to ourselves, and once we became honest with the music and, and true to ourselves and our influences, we had success. When we were faking yeah. it and trying to be Judas Priest, <laughs> nobody wanted anything to do with it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that. Even that's though, it. like I said, we did pull it off, okay. But it, it, it's you know, the story's out now.
0: Yeah, that's one thing that's it's it's wonderful. You know, when you look back at the record industry in that era, the fact that you know you were kind of third full length album sort of to, to you know to be able to to be able to express yourself in your voice uh, and to generate that kind of commercial success, where in the modern era, yeah. unfortunately labels might have dropped you after the first one. You know, it's, it's yeah. a tough, it's tougher in that regard, but, um, yeah, yeah, it was just amazing to see how, you know, the band kind of exploded. I remember seeing you guys, um, you know, in an opening slot for Whitesnake and then it seemed like a blink of an eye and you were back headlining with Tesla. Um, you know, you guys yeah certainly worked your butts off in that, uh, you know, on the road, it, you know, it seemed like you guys were running into yeah. town twice a year, every year and. uh, but it really
2: well, it's not. It's, not, it's, not yeah, it's nice to hear how informed you are because uh, a lot of people I talk to, they're not really that, you know, engulfed or know, know a lot about our history like you're talking about. But uh, we went through a very tough year in 1985 and like you're saying, we got dropped. We could have done a second record but the, what they told us was is they're not going to do anything with it. You know, and at that time, what was unusual is most um, major labels had what they called artist development if you know if you only sold 125 thousand your first go-round you know let's get them to 250 maybe get a songwriter in here maybe do this or that you know mm-hmm. and they wanted nothing to do with any of that so that was unusual but 1985 I remember walking on the beach with my manager and he goes so what do you want to do he goes, Do you want to fight or do you want to call it a day? And I go, I want to fight, man. You know, I, I, I think we could do better. I, I know we can. And so we just borrowed some money and did that Shot in the Dark album and got a marginal hit with Face Today, which got Capital interested, which was amazing because they were the father company of EMI America. EMI America was a subsidiary of Capital. So that was pretty awesome to, to get a second chance, you know, and be able to come with a strong record, and you know,
0: when you get when a you,
2: little attention.
0: When you opted to to do Face the Day, was that something that um, you guys had done in the past? I mean, it, it sounds so perfect for you guys, you know, especially you yeah, know, listening to the band's history. And I know a lot of people probably aren't even familiar with the song uh, before you guys did
2: it. Yeah. Well, what happened was our manager uh, kind of worked with a band called The Angels from Australia. Mm -hmm. America wanted nothing to do with them. They kind of just wrote them off as an ACDC cover band or whatever. So they had difficulty uh, breaking in America. Alan Niven brought that song to us, and we thought we could make it into something. And um, so we changed it a little bit, it had a nice groove. It kind of fit with my, you know, what I like, you know, blues, rock, you know. So, uh, you know, the song came out pretty decent. We made a video and everything. And uh, this was all done for borrowing $15,000 from a guy named Fred, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's pretty ironic, some of the stuff we've been through. But, um, you know, it's not always... You know the perfect demo tape, eight by ten biography that ends the story. You know, of course we've done stuff like that before, but every story I've ever heard never involved. Oh yeah, the record company saw our bio and our eight by ten and listened to our demo and they they were so excited they just signed us on the spot. I yeah. haven't heard that story once, but yeah, that's probably supposedly a lot of- how. Uh-
0: A lot of deals with Fred's out there in the music industry. Yeah,
2: Um, yeah. So Fred came through, you know. And uh, so, you know, we made that record. It's a little bit unorthodox in a way. Uh, I don't know if that's the correct word, but it it was, you know, oh, you got this song and that song. It was almost like our direction wasn't quite there. But then, um, I once bit, and I just... You know, when Niven said I could just come with anything and just just feel it You know go by your influences, this that and the other Yeah, so yeah um, That kind of freed me up to do what I wanted and and Like I said, you know, we're just true true to the music.
0: Yeah, and you can feel that Mark, I want to thank you so much. I don't want to keep you um, I'm sure you're a busy man, but again, you'll be in uh, Mount Pleasant on the 5th of October look forward to seeing you guys and, and uh, for those who haven't had a chance to check out Mitch to get a you know, get blown away with
2: his yeah songs. oh he's awesome man he's a great front man and uh, yeah we're looking forward to that show and um, thanks thanks John
1: sweet little baby you don't have to go little baby tell me you won't go be so good
2: together
1: if we had the time. Being alone a And I'll be
0: wraps up this episode of Iron City Rocks. Thank you to Mark Kendall of Great White. Uh, If you're a fan of the show, been listening for a long time, you'll remember, I think it was back in either late 2009 or early 2010, Great White, one of the first national bands to join us on Iron City Rocks. Always a pleasure talking to them. It was actually... um, I may have mentioned this on previous episodes, but Great White was the first live band I saw live. Uh, in concert, they were opening for White Snake on the uh, kind of mammoth uh, 1987 album tour. Uh, I believe that show was actually in early 1988, if my memory serves me correct, and Setlist FM is correct. Uh, that show was actually, I believe, in February of... Uh, 1988 had to choose between going to see White Snake or going to see Def Leppard. Um, so I saw so White Snake and, and uh, Great White as opposed to Def Leppard and Tesla. Really, I can't miss uh, either way, but uh, both albums were huge at that period of time. Mysteria and the 87 White Snake album. I've always been a big fan of uh, Great White, It's a pleasure to have them on talking about the show. Again, to remind you, it's the gnarly 80s rock festival that's taking place in mount pleasant at hot shots sports arena it starts at two in the afternoon on saturday october 5th uh you've got food trucks uh, vendors craft vendors and the such and also uh, music by twisted fate sour mass shiva skydiver phonic and 13 stories and then at about nine o'clock uh Mark, Mitch, and and the guys will be from Great White will be coming on stage to do about a 90 minute set so it should be wrapping up between 10.30 and 11.00 um, for those of you who have to drive a little way to get to Mount Pleasant. going to be a great event. Um, great to see a band uh, in a nice arena like that. Uh, so, again, you check that out. And We're looking very much forward to, to new music from Great White. I mentioned uh, Mitch and he were writing songs. So I'm looking very, very much forward to see what that collaboration will bring in hopefully many, many years to come for Great White. So, until next, I want to thank you very much for listening. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. You can email us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. We are on Instagram page. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube are all forward slash Iron City Rocks. Let us know what you think about the show, what you like, what you don't like. Got some great feedback from some listeners this week. Uh, hope this uh, episode was uh, more enjoyable for the suggestion they had. And uh, want to thank all of you again for listening. And we will catch you next time.